Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. And we have a fantastic panel to uh, discuss a really important topic uh, coming out of Azra recently. And uh, before I get to that, I want to tell you about a couple of things going on that are really important. First off, is it's been a long time since we've done proper podcasts, and we've been kind of brainstorming in the background about how to um, move this podcast forward into the future. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to try to schedule this on the same day, same time every month so that you guys know when we're recording this. So we're going to try to do Sunday evenings. That seems to work out best for um, both our hosts and our guests uh, most of the time. Our next scheduled date is going to be July 12th. That's a Sunday. It's 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Same thing as this one. We're going to try to keep that routine most of the time and put those out every month. The other thing is we've been practicing with this live stream format because it allows us to be interactive with you uh, during these shows, as well as put out an audio uh, podcast after the fact. So we're going to try to do these recorded as live streams and then uh, put the audio recording into the podcast stream after the fact so you can listen to it uh, if you prefer that. When we do these live streams, just realize that the live stream goes out on multiple channels at the same time. So one is my Twitter feed. Second is Azra's Twitter feed, Azra's Facebook page, Azra's YouTube page, and Azra Rap also has a YouTube page. So you'll see live streams on any of those channels and feel free to watch on any of those. These videos will also live on those platforms after the fact. So if you want to watch the video afterwards, you can watch the video at those locations. So a lot of good stuff happening with the podcast. And you're going to meet some new faces and some old faces at the same time as we move it into the future. Another big announcement. Um, so as many of you realize, conferences are kind of in a, a nebulous state right now. And Azra has been uh, discussing in the background how to make its content and its membership stay connected um, uh, for the next uh, foreseeable future as we deal with the coronavirus. So one of the things that was recently announced, I hopefully you saw it in your emails, is that ASRA is combining with ESRA, the European Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Therapy, to do a co-branded partnership conference. Uh, they call it the International E-Congress, and it's going to be held on Saturday, September 19th um, of this year. So that's coming up in just a couple, few months. This is interesting. So it's going to be 24 hours nonstop of content. And I'm, uh, I'm guessing this is to address all the different time zones. Plus the content will live on on the websites for a year. So you can still see that content afterwards or participate in the real-time interactive uh, Congress uh, whenever it's appropriate for your time zone. Here's the best part. The best uh, part is that it's completely free to ASRA members or ESRA members. So if you're already a member, you're going to be able to register for this Congress and participate in this absolutely free. Um, to go to that, go to ASRA.com backslash e-Congress or ESRAEurope.org. Sorry, let me say that again. www.ESRAEurope.org and www.ASRA.com slash e-Congress. So you can register for the meeting and participate in this really unique event that I think will be a great way to keep the community together and still learning throughout this process. So without uh, further ado, I would like to bring our full panel on here. So let me get everybody on the screen and we'll take this banner off. 
and put everybody on. So we have a great group of people here, some of our co-hosts, some new faces, and um, the topic that we're going to be talking about is specifically an article published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, and the title of that article is The Consensus Practice Guidelines on Interventions for Lumbar Facet Joint Pain from a multi-specialty international working group. And the lead author happens to be Dr. Steve Cohen, who's joining us today. And I figure if anybody knows about this article, he would have a pretty good sense of it. How are you, Dr. Cohen? I'm fine. Thanks, Raj, for, uh, for the invite. And it's great to have you to be able to talk about this. And we've got all of our, uh, some of our familiar faces here. Eric Schwenk's here. Gary Schwartz is here, Sandy Christensen is here, and we have a new friend with us, Kathan Chopra from University of Michigan, and he's um, going to be joining us on future podcasts as well. Um, so uh, we hope to get uh, familiar with Kathan's face in uh, all our future live streams. And so today I'm going to let Kathan kind of drive this conversation. He's been uh, filtering through this article and looking at various uh, questions that are addressed in the article at different points. There's 17 questions addressed in this article. He picked five to start the conversation with. So, Kather, I'm going to mute my microphone and let you start the conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Gupta, for having me. Uh, I just wanted to thank everyone for tuning in to the, the podcast today and uh, thank the great uh, panel of experts that we have on today. Uh, so the article, like Dr. Gupta mentioned, is the, it's the Consensus Practice Guidelines on, on Intervention for Lumbar Facet Joint Pain. Um, from a multi-specialty international working group um, by Dr. Steve Cohen himself and, and all the other contributors that you can see on the screen there. Um, uh, the purpose of this paper, and obviously Dr. Cohen jump in and, and add on to this if, if you feel fit, um, I felt, at least from my end, was to help, you know, sort of clearly define the best treatment practices for patients uh, with facet joint disease and, and try to standardize uh, the ways in which we can manage uh, this condition. And it's, it's a very, you know, encompassing publication, and it asks a lot of the, the hard-hitting questions that um, I think we've been asking ourselves over the years as our, as our practice evolves. Um, like Dr. Gupta mentioned, uh, the way we've decided to approach this specific podcast is, is to select five of the questions out of the 17 that uh, we felt um, address kind of the broadest spectrum of content. And, and as you go through, um, as we go through the article together, you as the audience can kind of think of it sort of as like a simulated patient visit where we start um, you know, kind of from the beginning, um, from when a patient walks through your doors to, to eventually maybe when they leave or if they have the procedure and kind of the, the future beyond that. Um, so, Dr. Cohen, we'll, we'll start um, with, uh, I think, one of, the, one of the more important, but maybe not the flashiest question. Um, this was question three. And the question states, uh, you know, should physical therapy and or conservative treatment be a prerequisite um, before we do any prognostic facet joint blocks? Um, should they be concurrent? And um, maybe how long should a patient even consider continu continuing the conservative treatment before uh, maybe reaching out to us for some type of intervention? So I'll, I'll let you have the floor here. Thanks. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you, you know, but uh, a little over a week ago, uh, all of the CMOs or the representatives um, for the CMS carriers, the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services carriers, they had a... Um, you know, they convened a meeting and they, their, their purpose was, was kind of the same thing that we were trying to do and that we're trying to do over here. And that was to really standardize uh, treat, you know, treatment um, so that, uh, you know, and, and the feeling, and, and I've discussed this with them um, as recently as Thursday, you know, offline, that, you know, there shouldn't be different standards based on where you live. 
So it, it shouldn't be that, you know, people from Iowa are treated one way and people, so there, there should really be national um, standards. I think that the, this is a fundamental, you know, tenet of medicine in, in general, try more conservative treatments first, although, although the, the, the evidence for really any conservative, you know, treatment in people with diagnosed or suspected facet pain, you know, is, is, is very weak. And there are multiple, you know, organizations that recommend conservative treatment. Sometimes they're clear on the duration, like NAS. Other times they're they're not. You know, the the VA system and the Department of Defense they also propose this. The VA system uses a, uses a step care model. AIM recommends this. Nice in the United Kingdom. And um, you know, if you if you look at the the clinical trials that evaluated, um, you know, facet joint radiofrequency ablation, medial branch radiofrequency ablation, all of them required, uh, you know, a period of failed treatment except for two, the Van Wick study and the Leclerc study, and and they were they were negative studies, and a few years back, maybe 2017 or 16, we published um something called Aquarius, where we were trying to rate the tech technical quality of epidural steroid injection studies. And there were a lot of, you know, big representatives on, on that from all over the world. Um, on, on our panel, some of the authors were, um, you know, uh, Dr. Moon, Dr. Um, Van Zunder from the UK, Chad Brummett, Mark Huntoon, who at the time was the editor-in-chief. And we concluded that, that really it should be three months they, that people for you know epidural steroid injections and for clinical trials it, it's a little bit different because you don't want people you know enrolling with four weeks or six weeks worth of pain because they're likely to get better um, uh, anyway. What I tell patients is that you know facet pain almost never occurs in isolation. So. Anybody with significant facet pathology on imaging will also have dyspathology, usually precedes facet pathology by, by many, many years, by the time somebody's 40. But, you know, more than half of the people in, in the United States have significant disc pathology by the time they're in their late 30s. For facet pathology, it's about 60 years before half of the population, the asymptomatic, you know, population has it. So they've also done systematic reviews. I think one of them is by a guy Geiser. So most people with back pain, irrespective of the cause, they have muscle pathology. So I tell patients, look, you know, you're you're probably deconditioned. You may have, you know, um, muscle atrophy. You may have muscle tension. Um, I think that the general spine literature. Uh, aside from facet pathology, also supports it. And one of the articles that we cited in the guidelines was, was our study, was the largest randomized study evaluating uh, cervical epidural steroid injections. And we had people who just got a series of cervical epidural steroid injections, people who got, you know, physical therapy and, you know, and medication, or people who got combination. And the only group that really you know, experienced meaningful benefit were those who had, you know, physical therapy. Some of them had medications, not all, because many of them tried it, and epidural steroid injections together. So, so that kind of 
you know, illustrates that these should be done concurrently. Thanks, Steve. Um, in terms of the meeting, are you pretty hopeful that based on how it went, there will be kind of a standard across the entire United States? So I'm pretty sure that there will be because that, that was the objective. Um, what they decide, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think what they'll, they'll do is they get together, then they'll put out their recommendations. They have a, another period of public comments. And then um, I, I have a lot of insight into how the, the process works now, um, you know, to get changes from having a lot of offline discussions with them. Can but, you share a little bit of that with us or is that privileged? No, no, it, it, it's not privileged, you know, to, to, to actually have, you know, CMS, like the, the main CMS, which is here in Maryland, change something is an enormous task. It can really take, you know, take years. And so Medicare, you know, really makes a, a determination and then the various contractors, you know, decide how those are carried out. And so that's why you have such discrepancy. And so I think at least in the interventional spine literature, this is the first time that they're trying to to come together to standardize them so that people in in you know Oregon don't have to 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 go through hoops that people in Maryland or, or Arkansas don't have to go through. What kind so of timeline? the Medicare carriers themselves that have decided to do this. Yeah, which I think is a good sign. What kind of timeline do you think we're looking at in terms of being standardized across the country? Are we talking about years, months? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I know that they haven't sent us, um, you know, what what they what they decided. Um, but they, this was very, very heavily cited the, these guidelines. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's just more important than ever now, um, especially because uh, trying to kind of standardize these type of uh, these treatments, because so many times I've had, you know, patients come to me and, you know, they had facet joint injections versus medial branch blocks, or they had a mix of, uh, of sort of both. Um, and and uh, they were already convinced that that sort of treatment modality is not something that will work for them. Uh, when in reality, if, if things were just kind of done the same way or, or maybe even explained um, kind of correctly, um, that we might have been able to offer something that, that would help them. Um, uh, Dr. Schwenk, I believe your, your mic is muted, but I think you were trying to um, let it talk to us a little bit about something you might want to contribute to the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, my question is really related to conservative therapy. You mentioned it earlier, and it looks like three months has been the generally agreed upon time. What, uh, what really would be the argument about not waiting three months to do conservative therapy? What's the downside, if any? You know, um, well, the, you know, there, there's a, so I, I don't I, I we had discussions about this last Thursday offline with some of the, the Medicare carriers. Um, and, you know, I'm a big advocate and this this was brought up, you know, in a few places for personalized medicine. So I don't think the, the same decision, um, you know, needs to be made, uh, you know, for everyone. And so there might be people. You know, when we we know this like during COVID, there might be people who are working and they're 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 they have a really important job that that's important for society. They can't work; they're completely debilitated. I'm not sure that they need to you know wait for three months. Um, you know, and um, and there there are probably you know 
other other people. Um, the, the the downside is that you know in general disease burden, which includes duration of pain for almost every procedure. So whether it's surgery, epidural steroid injections, radiofrequency ablation, disease burden is often associated with you know poorer outcome. So disease burden can include opioid use, duration of pain, um, you know magnitude or severity of pain, um, you know, previous surgery and, and interventions. So that's the, like the, that's the basis for the, you know, the, um, the thinking that early and aggressive treatment works better. The, the, the problem, the problem is, is, is if you do something too early, like, uh, and, and this is why, you know, in the, the Aquarius guidelines, why everyone recommended, you know, three months is because, um, you know, if you're doing epidural steroid injections on people with, you know, two weeks worth of pain, they're, they're likely to get better no matter what, whether or not it's epidural steroid injection. And so, and, and the problem with this is that, you know, how this works, right? Being, um, you know, being pain doctors, people are going to get them and they're going to repeat them and they're going to repeat them again and again. And it's really hard to, to say. You would have gotten you would have gotten positive results without knowing really what it means. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you know would it have just resolved on its own, um, or or did we do something that helped? It, it's tough to tell. Um, and I think you know it's it's a core tenet of medicine, like Dr. Cohen mentioned. You know, the non-invasive first um, versus the the invasive. Sometimes just some basic lifestyle measures and some strengthening of the paraspinal musculature can do a, a great help um, versus, you know, putting, having to put a needle in and, and proceeding to denervation and things like that. Um, but all too often, you know, we see patients that do um, come to you and say that, you know, I did three months of PT, I tried, you know, Mobic, you know, Nafris and things of that. And I'm unfortunately still having this low back pain and it's a, it's really, it's affecting my life. So, um, Dr. Schwartz, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the interventions that we can, you know, actually offer uh, these patients that might have facet-mediated pain, and maybe when you might pick one over the other, and kind of your whole thought process on that. And this is the the great debate on interventional pain management for facetogenic back pain is when to do uh, medial branches versus interarticular. At least in my practice, most patients come to me after failing physical therapy or NSAIDs. They've already failed a good amount of weeks of interventions and this is the great debate and i want to hear dr Cohn's thoughts on this but in my practice we mainly go for medial branch blocks prior to rfa i think it's technically easier to do who's ever tried to get into the joint if you tell me you get into the joint 100 percent of the time I'll, I'll do backflips down the hall especially in some of these 89 year old patients to get in the four or five the set joint in 5-1, you know, sometimes it's just technically not there. And how long are you going to sit there poking away at these elderly patients? And in the end, in, in my practice and with a lot of the, these recommendations and other societies in the past, is in the end, we're radio, doing the radio frequency ablation of the medial branch. So should we be going for the joint or the medial branch? I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Dr. Cohn. So I would say medial branch blocks have um, face validity as a, you know, as, as a predictive tool. But but not only that, I, I think it's strongly you know supported by the literature. So if you look at all of the randomized trials, and and there's a lot of differences, right? There's a lot of confounding factors. But in general, those that used you know medial branch blocks had better results than those that used you know intraarticular injections, like the the Leclerc study. Um, 
you know, uh, the Van Wick study, the Gallagher study back in the, you know, back in the 90s. Um, we know also from, you know, from Kaplan's study that there is a percentage of people where the medial branches probably don't innervate the facet joints. And therefore, you could theoretically get, you know, pain relief from, you know, intra-articular injections, um, and you won't get better with medial branch neurotomy. Um, you brought up a, a, a great point, Gary. You know, there, there's a, a very, very significant failure rate. And so the, you know, the data that you can see for this is from, you know, Lynch and Taylor. I think it was like a, an our fact study. And then there's an, an older study by Lilius. And so it's probably around 33% per joint and more than 50%, you know, if you're doing, let's say, you know, uh, two or more, you know, two or two or more injections. So that would be three medial branches. So you have a very significant, you know, technical failure rate with, um, and you're right, it's, it's, it, you know, it's more painful, especially if you're struggling to try to get, you know, um, medication into the joint. Medication extravasates out of the joint. You can rupture the joint capsule, which can cause, you know, all sorts of problems. If it's more painful because you're struggling, um, you know, then you can cause, you know, small bleeds or spasm or, or you know, procedure-related pain. You can have a false negative rate. So, um, you know, I think that we brought up here that, you know, if you look at a lot of the guidelines, like, um, you know, the, the review written by, you know, Jan van Zundert from the World Institute of Pain, you know, saying that, that you should not really have medial branch blocks, that very, very large um, NHS carrier in Manchester, they, 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 they won't pay for it them anymore. SIS guidelines say that you should use, you know, medial branch blocks. Um, ASIP doesn't really um, discuss intra-articular injections. They just say that, you know, the medial branch blocks have validity as, as diagnostic or prognostic tools. And so we, we concurred um, with that, again, because of face validity, but also because the, the evidence directly and indirectly supports that. Steve, I trained under you, so I know the answer to this question. Um, but for our viewers, um, are there any scenarios where you do use an intraarticular steroid injection for the facet joint? Yeah, there, there, there are some. So, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we would use it sometimes when we're very concerned about, um, you know. Uh, denervation because if you're if you're denervating the facet joint you're also denervating muscles and people say well the medial branch innervates the multifidus but there is some evidence that you know at least in some cases that we're we're denervating other muscles as well so the longissimus the iliocostalis muscle and a long time ago we had, we had kind of cited this now but but Avanos was doing a study jeff peterson was was very involved. They were doing EMGs on on everyone, and they're saying it's very difficult to um, to actually see the multifidus, you know, move, um, you know, contractions of the multifidus. So at a lot of these levels, you're seeing, you know, other muscles, the longissimus, iliocostalis, and at L5, um, you know, it's not the medial branch; it's the it's the dorsal ramus itself, and the multifidus doesn't even extend down that far. Um, so, so you're denervating other other spinal, you know, spinal muscles. So this could probably be, you know, um, a big concern in in young athletes. Um, you know, we do them. A lot of people do them in, at Walter Reed. 
um, you know, or in military personnel. Some of the physiatrists, you know, on, on our panel say that, you know, denervating some of these muscles can in increase, you know, instability um, in patients with like spondylolisthesis or who have baseline instability. Maybe they've had like previous laminectomies. Um, and Dr. Quo, and I have a question for you. Um, oftentimes, um, I'll see a patient who, who's seen another pain provider um, before they have come to see um, us at the university, and, and they've had um, at least documented, uh, you know, lumbar facet joint injections, you know, 405, L5, S1. Um, they come to you and they say, hey, you know, this, this injection, it didn't really help me uh, at all. But uh, based on your exam and your, and your radiologic findings, you're, you're more or less convinced that it, it could be mediated from the facet joint. Do you kind of look at this patient from a more of a you know fresh, clean perspective, or, or you see someone that had a facet joint intervention that didn't work? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Does that push your diagnosis a little further down your differential list, or do you kind of just view them from a, a clean lens, essentially? Well, so, so it also depends on um, you know if I know the person, um, you know, uh, like if if uh, we had um, you know dinner this week with uh, you know Tom Larkin. And so he's been very involved in, in research and sometimes we'll get patients that come from him and, and uh, you know, I, I know how he does, does things. Um, but, you know, usually what, what en ends up happening with, um, with uh, you know, outside is, is so the, the, the procedures like medial branch blocks. And I thought that we were going to, you know, kind of um, bring this up at, at some point. I, I think, you know, I think that we will is that there, um, you know, there's higher false positive rates than false negative rates for these. And so a, a lot of people, um, you know, there's lots of different reasons for that because people use excess volumes um, because they get sedated, you know, during procedures because they're, they're very anxious because they have high expectations because they want to please their, 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 Physician. Um, so, if somebody has, um, a, you know, a, a positive block, I, um, you know, I'm often more skeptical than if they had a, a negative block. Because physicians, I think, also have incentives for the blocks to be positive, so they can do other treatments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and speaking of, you know, what what designates kind of a, a positive and, and a negative block, I think that kind of leads us into our next question. And a question that I've often wondered, um, uh, what, you know, what their optimal answer is. And, and that question is, is question 10. You know, what, what should the cutoff be uh, in terms of uh, percent relief for designating a block as positive? And um, should we even only be using a percentage or should we take into account um, some other, you know, more subjective non-pain score measures? Um, so, Dr. Cohen, uh, I know you, have a, you, you, met, you kind of briefly touched on that. I wonder if we can kind of walk into this subject uh, as you were doing. So, so th this, this was uh, one, one of those um, subjects that was discussed at the meeting a, a week and a half ago. And, you know, the, the whole concept of 80 percent um, or, or like near 100 percent relief, that comes from really, really old guidelines with SIS. And, you know, the world was a very different place back in the 1990s when, when they came up with these, these guidelines. Um, so people were using opioids very freely. There were no restrictions on spine surgery and people were getting you know, uh, spine surgery. The impact guidelines hadn't come out um, yet. So, um, and you know, when, we, when I've, and I've spoken to all of them, when you, when you speak to a lot of the people who are the founding members of SIS, they say, you know, 
we realize you know it doesn't make a lot of a lot of sense and and i'll i'll, I'll tell you why again facet pathology almost never occurs in isolation there's tons of radiological literature on this so everyone who has significant facet pathology also has disc pathology and they usually have muscle pathology as well so it doesn't even make a lot of sense the uh, the impact guidelines say that that 30 percent is clinically meaningful pain relief for a patient and if you look at all the the studies that that they're doing now including like our huge nih um you know heal grant for 16 million you know people are we're using you know 30% pain relief. That's all the FDA studies, right? When they have like responders, they use 30%, they use 50%, 50% being substantial um, pain relief. So, um, and if you, you look at the data and, and you don't just have to look at the, you know, the facet data because th there's lots and lots of other studies that, are, that have compared different cutoffs. Um, you know, it's been done for celiac plexus neurolysis, looking at the cutoff by Mike Erdick, for superior hypogastric plexus neurolysis by Kai McGreevy, um, spinal cord stimulation. It's been done for pulsed radio frequency by, by Jules Wang. It's been done by Milan Stojanovich. So th th there's a whole bunch of literature by Holden Seagal, I think when they were in, I think she's in uh, Wisconsin now, but maybe when they were in New, New Haven. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, um, you know, there's no difference. There are two studies that report um, differences with, um, you know, like if you compare um, like 50% versus 75 or 80%. So one was by Rick Derby. It was a very small study. There were 51 patients. Some had one block, some had two blocks. And what they found was that if you had 80% relief on one or two blocks, that 84% um, of those patients had a positive outcome. If you had between 50 and 79% relief, 56% of those patients had a positive outcome. So you could say, well, that's great, 84% versus 56%. But think about this, it almost makes no sense. Those 56% of people who had a positive radiofrequency ablation outcome, they, they would never have had the procedure if you had 80%. So what would they have ended up um, having done? And the other study was by, uh, you know, Manchikanti, and, and he both of the studies by Derby and Manchikanti, probably about half the patients were on opioids. And, you know, Manchikanti also, um, you know, stratified cutoff by 80%. And, you know, in the, most of those patients also didn't have radiofrequency ablation. They just had serial medial branch blocks. And if you had more than 80% relief with medial branch blocks, and then either you've got subsequent medial branch blocks or radiofrequency ablation, 93% of those had continued relief at one year. And the people who had less than 80%, but more than 50%, it was 75%. So people could say, neither of these were statistically significant, but people could say, well, 93% is higher than 75%. But again, if you, if you put your cutoff at 80%, it, it's insane because these 75% of people, you know, who got relief wouldn't, would have been denied this, this, safe beneficial procedure but this steve do you include functionality in the course when your patients come back to the office like look as you said before especially for elderly patients their pain is multifactorial they may have festogenic pain but they also may have disc pathology muscular weakness so let's say they say hey my pain's down 40 percent, but i'm 80 percent better when i wake up in the morning 
after your diagnostic medial branch blocks for the first day? Would you, what would, would you consider that a positive test? And also, what do you do with the different insurances? Certain insurances say 50%, certain insurances say, the commercial insurances say 80%, which makes it a little bit confusing sometimes for our patients. Um, so yeah, you, you should always consider, um, you know, other things if you can, um, right? So the FDA says that if you, if you have, um, you know, like a, a clinically meaningful increase in analgesic, in analgesics during like a, you know, a clinical trial that you can't consider it a positive outcome, right? So like, th that's why they try to limit concomitant medication use. So in other words, if, if you're comparing, you know, two treatments, and then you start somebody on, on opioids and they feel better, you can't attribute the effect to the treatment, right? So that, that's why you try to liver, you know, limit these things. Um, so it, it, when we give people pain diaries, we always have activity logs, right? So we don't want them going home, falling asleep and, and you know, or, or taking, you know, four Percocets and saying, you know, I felt better. Um, so again, they wouldn't be considered positive outcomes, but, you know, it's very difficult because the duration of relief is short, you know, it should be short. So, um, you know, uh, the SIS, when they look at their comparative blocks, they say that you shouldn't have more than seven hours worth of relief with lidocaine. Ideally, it should be less, like it should be between 90 minutes and seven hours. And with bupivacaine, it should be between three hours and no more than 24 hours. So if you're getting three or four or five or six hours, if you're, you're looking at like trying to look at um, functionality objectively, you can give people like a pedometer or something. But the instruments that people most commonly use, like Roland Morris or a sweat street disability, there's a lot of things that they assess that you really can't assess in three hours. Like, like they look at the ability of people to drive or to travel um, or how well they sleep or their sex life. And so if something lasts for three or four hours, you really can't assess those things. We tell them not to drive. You know, it's going to wear off before they sleep. And um, so, but I'm, I'm kind of, one thing that we're looking at, you know, hopefully in, in our HEAL trial, we're trying to look at um, these ultra long acting formulations that may provide relief for, you know, for days, like liposomal bupivacaine. Um, so if, if you look at like spinal cord stimulation, you know, th there's a big difference in, in trials. Like I've, I've been discussing, like in Maryland, they have like four week trials, like, like trials are four weeks if their national insurance is going to pay for these, where we have trials here for five days or six days or seven days. So it's harder to, to assess things like, um, you know, medication reduction in a shorter period of time. So they require long trials and they want to make sure before they approve you know, like a permanent implant that you're able to reduce, you know, opioid use if you're on opioids. So, so there's a good thing to be said about longer periods of time where you could measure function. Steve, I had a clinical case recently where I, in Oregon, they require two diagnostic medial branch blocks before we move on to radiofrequency ablation. And the first block was helpful and the second block wasn't helpful. What do you recommend doing in that kind of situation? So, so it's very funny. You know, I, I was, well, we, we were discussing the issue of, you know, one or two blocks. There were some people on the, on the panel and they were advocating for, or they were, had been advocating for, you know, for two blocks. 
And so one was DJ Kennedy and one was Dave Provenzano. And, you know, they both said, you know, we looked at our, especially, you know, uh, Dr. Kennedy in Nashville, where you are, said, you know, I've looked at all of my data and it, it's over 90% of people who respond to the first block respond to the second block. And Dave said the same thing. If you respond to the first block, he goes to probably close to 90% will respond to a, you know, to a second block. And, you know, uh, last night when I was talking to Tom Larkin, he said it's probably around 90%, but, but in reality, it's going to be 100% because even people who don't respond, you know, the, the, they'll end up getting the, the second RFA. They'll end, up, they'll end up getting an RFA anyway, because what else are you going to do? So people will just say, are you sure you only got this much relief? Because we're not going to be able to do it. it it's not ideal, but it, it is what it is. Yeah, it's almost harder to have an even number of blocks to make your decision off of, because if there was a third, then you can say, well, we had three positive and one negative, so that's the majority. But when you're 50-50, it's like, where does that really leave you other than what you said of moving on to the RFA and kind of hoping for the best? The, 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 the issue with, you know, multiple blocks is that, so if you have a, if you have a, um, a relatively inexpensive, safe, definitive procedure, then you really need to have a, a diagnostic, either no diagnostic test, or you have to have a diagnostic test that has high sensitivity and high negative predictive value so that you don't miss people, right? The, because the treatment is safe and it's inexpensive. And the problem with, you know, with medial branch blocks and intraarticular injections is they don't have high sensitivity or negative predictive value. So the best studies to look at this were Susan Lord's um, 1995 study done in the cervical uh, spine where they did actually saline, lidocaine, and bupivacaine, and they found a 54% sensitivity and a 68% negative predictive value. And then Rick Derby's um, 2013, it was a retrospective study, um, it's really hard to interpret it, but there were 229 patients and he found 55% sensitivity and 53% negative predictive value. So, so in other words, you know, the, the, the blocks themselves, they, they don't make sense. People are getting discs replaced and spine fused without discography and nobody's doing two discograms, right, at, this, at, the, at the same time. Steve, I got a quick question for you for... Um... Uh, for us acute pain colleagues out there that are unintelligent um, on this topic, help me understand something. Because when I read this stuff, I feel like everybody wants to get to RFA, but they're resisting the temptation to go to RFA earlier and earlier in the patient's care. But that's really where they want to be. And all these measures are put into place as barriers, as roadblocks, as speed bumps along that path. Um, help me just... Uh, almost as a layman's term, um, why not RFA sooner? What is the, you know, it's described as a safe and effective procedure. Why not just jump to that sooner? Is it a cost thing? Is it a permanent damage question? Is it a, a potential debility? Is there a complication that we're worried about? Um, help me understand why we don't just jump to that faster and why all the resistance. So, you know, it's a, that's a really, really good point. So, so first of all, you know, you have to recognize that that all of these stakeholders may have different goals, right? Organizations, payers, patients, providers, right? So, so, and you know, payers make these determination, and that's the kind of the goal for um, 
why they had this big, huge standardization meeting, um, you know, the week, the week before last. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really great question because, you know, even when, when I was a fellow, in 2000 at Mass General, like the biggest question in our fellowship were, were how many, um, you know, were, were how many blocks, how many blocks should you do? And, and so the, the question was, you know, one or, or two blocks. But when we did, a, 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 which at the time was the, um, you know, the, the biggest, um, or I guess the most publicized study in anesthesiology, the 2010 paper, um, so we had been planning to do one or two blocks, but we had these wars that were going on. And, and you know, we had opened up the first pain clinic a few years earlier in, in Iraq. And then we were also treating people in, in Germany. And you had basically, if they were like in a combat support hospital, like in Ibn Sina, they had about five to seven days where you could get them back to, to duty or they had to be medically evacuated. If they made it to Germany, they had two weeks, but it wasn't really two weeks with you. It was two weeks to do all this paperwork. So you kind of had one shot. So a lot of people were getting radiofrequency ablation, you know, with no blocks. They're just doing it. And, and they were getting better. So we put zero blocks in there and we randomized like 200, a little over 225 patients, uh, 151 patients to get radiofrequency with two blocks. So lidocaine or bupivacaine. Um, in random order, and then they got the other one, and they had to get at least longer pain relief with bupivacaine, with just bupivacaine, or they just went straight to radiofrequency ablation. And, you know, of course, the success rate was higher um, with, with two blocks, right? So the radiofrequency ablation success rate was higher with two blocks. And that it, it, it will always be the case. So if you look at, um, like, data from Rick Derby, and you look at uh, a study that Zach McCormick did um, where they did uh, people who had between 50 and 74% pain relief got um, ended up getting two blocks. And people who had, it was either 75% or 80. And people who had more than 75 or 80% pain relief just got one block. And the people who got two blocks, even though they had less pain relief, did, did better. So, but if you looked at the overall total number of successful procedures, it was much higher, much higher in the zero block group. And it's always going to be the same thing. So this study could be done a, a hundred times. And that's not an artifact because in the zero block group, um, you have all of the placebo responders. And believe me, if you res respond to a, you know, to, um, to a placebo, you're going to respond to treatment. And the, the goal of doing blocks is, is to reduce false positive, doing two blocks. But when you do more than one block, you increase false negatives. So you have no false negatives in the zero block group and you capture all the placebo responders. So we'll always, always have the, the greatest number of successful procedures. But we also looked, we, we did this very, very complex um, analysis where we looked at costs. We included everything like missed work days, you know, medications. And it was it was not only a lot less in the, you know, the cost per successful treatment, but the overall costs for the group that got zero blocks was less. So in other words, you had more success rates and you, you had a higher overall success rate and a lower overall cost. And Zach McCormick did something very similar in the knee where he randomized people to get radiofrequency ablation with zero blocks or one 
genicular nerve block. And then if they had a positive response, they got RFA. And I think their success rates were 64% in the group that had zero block versus 59% in the group that had a single block. Steve, one quick follow-up. If you're going to do a single block prior to RFA, what would local would you choose? Bupivacaine or lidocaine? Bupivacaine, because I think it gives you a, a longer time to see if there's benefit in terms of and the problem with like lidocaine is, you know, our patients stay in the recovery area for 30 minutes and then they, they go to their car. Um, and then, you know, by the time they get home, it's, it, you know, they've just been in the car and, and lidocaine is worn off. So they're not really doing their normal activities. Hey, Steve, before Caitlin moves on to the next question, we had a comment uh, question uh, from uh, Dr. Prithanan Singh, who's in Singapore. And um, he asked the question, will the placebo responders have the same amount time of relief as the positive responders if you were in the zero block group, I assume? So do the placebo responders, you said they have some response, but is it the same amount of duration of relief that they get as true responders? I don't know if you can differentiate. So, so it's impossible to differentiate <laughs> because, you know, if you look at even F fMRI studies, so that we, when you look at like functional or chemical imaging and people get, let's say, like a medication or a placebo, two people who get the medication, um, if they have different response, there'll be different, um, you know, uh, patterns, uh, you know, metabolic patterns in, in their brain, blood flow patterns in their brain. And people who get different treatments like a placebo and an active treatment, if they respond, you'll, you'll see similarity. So it's really very difficult. And people think that the, um, you know, that the placebo response, oh, it's very short lived, but that's not true at all. So you can look at the work and uh, we, we're doing a, a project now with like uh, Luana Kaloka at University of Maryland. And we just had uh, Ted Kapchuk, um, who's probably the leading placebo researcher in, in the United States. He's at Beth Israel in Boston. He was supposed to come out to Baltimore, but he did a, a you know a meeting by Zoom, and and they'll say you know the placebo response can can last for months, and it can be repeated, so it can be very 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 difficult to tell. Facet ablation, there was a systematic review, and I think that they found you know it, it lasts for like 10, 10 months, but it really shouldn't because if you're just talking about nerve reinnervation or regeneration for the amount of distance that it has to to regenerate, it really should probably last about six weeks or seven weeks but people have longer relief and we're not even sure why that happens. Um, you know, maybe it's breaking the cycle of pain or reversing some central sensitization. Maybe the radio frequency itself, um, you know, slows regrowth of nerves. Um, so it, it, like I said, so it, it's very, it, it's hard to distinguish between a, a, a true placebo response and, um, you know, and a, a treatment response. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think these were two of the most, uh, I think, important questions uh, of the article that at least I personally took away, um, especially the, the point Dr. Cohen made where, you know, we, we look for 80 percent relief and, and really in life, it's hard to really get 80 percent anything. Um, so you know, if, you, if you stick to that number, you, you miss out on a significant pocket of patients that could have, um, you know, had help with, with your treatment and, and whether you consider, you know, RFA to be, you know, invasive or, you know, not so invasive. These patients are, are not going to, you know, just stop seeing 
pay doctors and, and not be in pain. They're going to go elsewhere. They might get surgery. They might get opioids. So uh, I think it's a, it's really great that we're kind of challenging that paradigm of the 80% in the two blocks so we can kind of capture that, that pocket of people that, that we might be missing out on. Um, but to move on to, to the last question today that we're, that we're going to discuss. Um, and this oh, question I, I, what, One more thing. So I don't um, have it over here, but you know, if you looked at the um, – I, I was looking, I was trying to pull apart this Holt and Siegel article from Pain Physician in 2013, where what they did was they did um, like two blocks with lidocaine and bupivacaine. And, you know, the, the gist of it is it, it doesn't make a difference if you have concordant pain relief with both. It has no effect on, on treatment outcomes. So in other words, um, it, it, it kind of goes against using two blocks. But when you, when you pull apart the data and they don't really discuss it, the group that actually did the best, the best, were those who got more than 24 hours relief of 100% relief with lidocaine blocks. So their diagnostic blocks were with lidocaine. They got 100% relief and it lasted more than 24 hours. So I'm thinking about this and I'm saying, you know, those people did the best with radiofrequency ablation and those people are probably placebo responders, right? 100% relief, more than 24 hours lidocaine. It's just kind of an, an interesting thing. I'm I'm sorry for. No, that was that was great. That's that's uh, interesting. 100% relief for 24 hours of lidocaine. It's hard to explain that. But um, uh, so uh, the last question that we're going to move on to uh, today, and this is a question that actually kind of hits home for me. Uh, one of my really good friends is actually um, going through this whole workup of the medial branch and, and the RFA. And this is a question that he sort of posed to me recently, as he's due to get his RFA pretty soon. Um, so your, you know, your patient comes to you, they had the procedure and they feel great, you know, you help them. Um, but they, they, they wonder, you know, that how often do I need to get these? Is it safe for them to be repeated? You know, will it work as well as it did the first time or even better? And, and those initial diagnostic blocks, um, do you need to repeat those, um, you know, before we do the RFA again? So a lot of questions here, Dr. Cohen, you can kind of take them as you see fit. Um, so this, this question was also uh, one of the questions that kind of came up on the, you know, the panel discussion with, with Medicare and, and almost everyone agreed that, that it probably doesn't make sense to repeat the block if it comes back in, um, you know, a, a time period that you would expect it would come back, you know, between three months and, and even more than a year. If somebody gets five or six years pain relief, you, you could make a very strong case for having to repeat the prognostic block and also provided their pain is at least qualitatively the same. So everyone thought, and if you look at the, the there, there's a whole bunch of studies that we, we had cited in the, um, you know, in the guidelines on this. And they all show very, very high success rates in people who are getting the procedure re repeated. Um, so the, I think the, um, the meta-analysis by Matt Smook showed about a 59% uh, success rate in people who had previous lumbar, and it was over 80% in the neck. But then all of the subsequent studies, and there were, there were close to half a dozen that were done since then, found success rates of over 80% in people who had radiofrequency ablation. And sometimes, like in the McBiker study, you know, they repeated it you know, multiple times. Um, and, and that's something that, that we all know from medicine, right? If somebody comes into your to your clinic and they've tried 15 patients and, and they're going to see and they're going to see you, you know, Sandy or Katan or, or Gary, um, you know, they're probably not going to get better with the 16th treatment if they failed 15 treatments. But if somebody comes in and, and 
you know, you've treated them, you know, over the years and, and, you know, they had foot pain and you, you gave them naproxen and they felt better and it was great. And they had sciatica, you gave them an epidural steroid injection and their pain went, went away a hundred percent. And they, you know, they, they had something else that happened, um, you know, you did an injection and they got better and then they come to you for a problem, you know, and, and they're a responder. There's a really strong chance that they're going to, to respond. Um, so I, I thought that that, that that was one of the um, the most straightforward things that, that almost everyone agree, everyone agreed um, that it, that it didn't make sense, um, you know, to to repeat it. Great. And, and I think the article also mentions that the procedure shouldn't be repeated, um, you know, more than more than two times a year. Is that what, what I guess? What is that sort of based on? I understand the concept of you know you know doing the denervation and causing you know a musculature denervation, but is there is that sort of a hard and fast thing that everyone tended to agree on? It's definitely what we do at our institution, but I was just wondering maybe if there's any literature behind that at all or anything. So there's no literature be behind that, and and you know like having these these really hard and fast numbers goes against the the whole concept of like personalized medicine. Um, you know, because, you know, I, I remember there, there was a, a, you know, back in the, you know, back in the day, I'm, I'm not sure who, who the fellow is, but we had this guy who was going, um, and he was a three-star general. He was leading all of these troops like in Iraq and he was leaving in three days and I, I couldn't get to Walter Reed and he, he came in and I, I just did like, um, you know, like, uh, you know, bilateral two-level radiofrequency ablation and and um, and an epidural steroid injection on him because I said that I wasn't going to. So, so you know, things change. You know, based on you know based on uh, circumstances, and certainly you know there there might be people you know who very very clearly could could benefit from having more than two per year. Like I said, you know, the, the whole concept of of six months. If you, if you just look at the how fast nerves grow maybe a, a millimeter, a little bit more than a millimeter, you know, a, a day, um, depends on lots and lots of factors and how far they have to travel. You shouldn't have six months worth of relief with radio frequency, but, but the fact is that, that you do. And the success rate in people who've had a previous success is not a hundred percent. So at some point it's going to, it's going to come down. We had, I had asked this question to, um, to a whole bunch of people. Because I think in the literature, the law, the the most times it's published as having been repeated is either six or seven. In the literature, you can't find anything. And I had this this big discussion, and and Nick Bogduk said that he had somebody who had been treated like twelve times. They come in and they they keep getting relief um, that lasts for a long time. Hey Steve, quick question on the uh, quick follow up on that. So Gary was commenting uh, on the side here that insurance often drives a lot of the decisions of how many blocks you can do in a year. And I'm always curious about places that don't uh, make their decisions based on uh, U United States insurance policies, uh, like other countries. And I'm sure you've spoken to people from around the world. Do they restrict the number of RFA blocks, uh, RFAs uh, based um, down to two a year, or are they more liberal because they're not constrained by the same insurance payment concerns? So I, I, I don't know um, all the different places. Like I said, you know, for these guidelines, we had people from all over the, you know, we had people from, you know, Asia and from, um, you know, from, from Canada and from, 
Belgium, you know, Netherlands and the UK and, and, and th they also agreed. But I, I think that, um, in a lot of countries, they don't have any restrictions on things like this. Like a, a lot of countries in Asia, you know, they'll see like, um, 70 or, or 80 patients like a day in a pain clinic and they just keep doing these procedures and they don't really ask that many questions and, and they don't pay a lot for the procedure. So it's kind of a different model and they don't have restrictions. And of course, you know, patients who are self pay or, or that have really these, these premium insurance policies that they, they often don't have the same restrictions. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I'm worried about how my back's going to do over time. And I've been sitting a lot during this coronavirus business. And so I, I actually got a stand-up desk for my podcasting at home now. So I'm standing up now just to try to strengthen these back muscles. So, you know, over time, I don't want to have to see any of you guys if I can avoid it. I, I trust all of you, but if I can avoid seeing it. No, this has been a, a extremely educational for me. Uh, you know, I don't uh, I don't live facet blocks. I don't live medial you know, branch blocks, but... Um, it clearly uh, applies to all of us as anesthesiologists in some form or another because these patients end up in the operating room if they're failed backs or they have failed backs and they end up to you guys or, you know, any combination of those things. And so um, we're definitely interacting with patients that are going through all of that stuff. Um, I, I can't say enough about uh, the panel today. I really appreciate everybody being on. Uh, this is our first time trying to do the podcast as a live stream, and I think it's been great. Um, and, uh, we're hoping to do this every month. Like I said, uh, moving on to the, the future, some of the faces up here will be popping back up again. And, uh, we'll be talking about acute pain and regional and, uh, acute pain, regional and chronic pain topics, uh, over the month. So we'll mix it up a little bit. Um, last reminder, just one more time in case you missed it at the beginning, Azra and Ezra are doing a joint e-congress this September 19th. Um, and it's going to be 24 hours worth of content. So um, make sure you find out about that. It's at azra.com slash econgress or ezraeurope.org. And you can register. And most importantly, it's free for any Azra or Ezra member. So if you haven't figured out your membership yet, make sure you go do that uh, because that's a great way to get value for your membership. I think we're learning what the future of conferences is going to be, and some form of this is going to probably continue into the future even, uh, although I would like to see you guys in person. That's always nicer um, than uh, this. This is a close second. So uh, thank you, everyone, and I hope you have a wonderful week uh, coming up, and we will see you guys on July 12th uh, for the next one. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.